The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Hugh Latimer, at the time of King Henry VIII, had founded the Church of England, you might say. But John Newton was the second founder of the Church of England, and his founding in the 18th century still remains. The whole evangelical movement of the Church of England stems from this slave-trading pirate, cursing naval deserter, with scars on his back from the lash of whips and a hole as big as a fist on his haunch and the marks of degradation and sin upon him. In one night, he had passed from death to life. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled John Newton's Text. As we continue in our series on great text of great men, he was once a wicked and cruel man who made his living as a slave trader. But the power of God's word transformed John Newton into one of the mightiest ministers of the gospel that England has ever seen. Join us as we examine the scripture verse that constantly reminded Newton of the Lord's wonderful work of redemption in his life. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 15. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, John Newton's Text. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray Thee that Thou shalt meet our need today, and that wherever we are, whatever we may be doing, whatever may be our condition, that Thou wilt speak to our heart and let us know that Thy grace is greater than all our sin and that Thy supply is greater than all our need. Meet us, we pray Thee, for our blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you today about a man whose life is described in one great text of Scripture and who chose that text as a monument to the power of Christ in his life. The man's name was John Newton. I begin by describing a street in the West End of London in December 1807. Around one block, hay and straw are piled six inches deep in order to deaden the noise of horses and wagons. A man is dying in one of the houses. The servants in the streets bow their heads and wipe away a tear. How is he, they ask and the servant of his house shakes her head and weeps. Upstairs in that house there lay dying one of the most remarkable men who has lived during the last thousand years. If you should say to me, from your knowledge of history and of men, 
What is the greatest transformation that God ever wrought in a human being? I would say that as far as I know, it's in John Newton. On New Year's Eve, 1807, he died. And in the city of London, Parliament was suspended. Magistrates closed the courts. Orders were given to close all shops. And thousands of people stood in the streets while his body went by. He had made one of the most remarkable impressions upon England that any man had ever made. Who was he? Well, let's go back to the early part of the 18th century. John Newton was born in London in 1725, the only child of his mother. She loved her little boy and poured out her whole heart upon him. She knew that she had tuberculosis and that she did not have many years to write her life upon her son. So she gave herself utterly to him. Every day she took that boy into her arms and prayed with him. She prayed for him. She taught him scripture verses. When she died, John was seven years old and knew 500 Bible verses by heart. When his mother died, the father could not take care of the boy, so he went to live in the home of an uncle, an uncouth shipmaster, and the boy was thrown into a vicious life. After serving on board his uncle's ship for some years, he was drafted into the British Navy, impressed, as they called it in those days. When he deserted, they caught him and flogged him, and the marks of the lashes remained upon his back as long as he lived. He deserted again and was caught by a press gang, men who were always looking for sailors, and they shoved him on board ship, and he went away for a long voyage. In a lengthy diary, he wrote of some of his experiences, and frequently he said, I forgot. I forgot, I forgot, this thing I soon forgot, I totally forgot. In the British Navy, he was such a good sailor and navigator that they put him on a training ship to teach the cadets and apprentices. John Newton had the reputation of knowing more swear words than any other man. It was said of him that he could curse for two hours without repeating himself. Finally, he jumped ship once more and went to Africa on a slave trader. I quote from his diary. I went to Africa that I might sin to my heart's content, that I might sin my fill. He went to Africa for the privilege of libertinage and vice, and when he got there, he met a Portuguese slave trader and joined him. His business was stealing men. This was a horrible thing. It meant murdering, buying and selling and bargaining for slaves. It meant chaining 50 men and marching them down to the coast, and leaving some of them by the way to die. John Newton could do this. He could see them thus die. He would put them on board ship and sell them off and then get drunk. In the town where he and the Portuguese slave trader lived, there were only two white men there, the Portuguese and himself. The Portuguese had a harem of seven or eight African wives, and the number one wife felt some tremendous hatred for John Newton. When the Portuguese went away for three months, she immediately had John Newton put in chains and made him her slave. This young fellow, 20 years of age, had to walk around the camp where she was, and she would laugh at him. When he came near food, she would have her servants knock it over. When he was terribly thirsty, they'd put a cup of water before him, and just as he was about to drink, the slave would spill it on the ground. When he wanted to eat, she would throw the food into the dirt, and make him get down on his knees and take it not with his hands but with his mouth. And he said that for months he never knew the taste of food that was not all dusty. 
He put it into his mouth and tried to separate the dust from the food. One day, when his chains were off for work purposes, he decided to try to escape inland into Africa. That was almost as though someone in New Orleans 200 years ago had tried to go up the Mississippi River into the territory of the Indians. Going inland in Africa was a desperate act, but things were too terrible for him to stay here, and John Newton was a desperate man. He escaped inland into Africa. Chances against survival were great. He had a little dugout, and he went up a river infested by crocodiles, snakes, all sorts of venomous reptiles, ferocious animals. But these were less terrible than the cruel mistress of the Portuguese slave trader. Now, as a navigator, he knew the stars, and he knew how to find directions. And he discovered that the river up which he was escaping turned and flowed parallel to the African coast. So he reckoned that even though he was 30 or 40 miles from the camp, he might not be more than a few miles from seacoast. So he left the river and went through the jungle on foot. When he arrived at the seacoast, there he was, away from any town, away from any human beings. He gathered wood together, and when he saw an English ship out at sea, he lighted a fire on the shore. Now the master sent a boat in, for it was the custom of the black people when they wanted to signal a ship that they had a load of ivory for sale to build a fire on the beach and the master expected to take on a cargo of ivory. Instead, he took on John Newton. When he got on board, the master heard his story and greeted him with gladness. The first mate had died two weeks before of fever, and the second mate had also died. So he said to John Newton, I'm making you first mate of this ship. So John Newton began his work as the first mate of the ship, and they started back to England. But two or three days later, they pulled in at an African port, and the master went on shore to transact some business. While he was gone, Newton opened a barrel of rum and got the entire crew dead drunk. When the master came back on board, he was so angry that he swung a belaying pin at John Newton, who put up his hand to defend himself, stepped back, and fell overboard into the shark-infested waters. He might have been killed or drowned, except for the fact that one of the sailors drove a great harpoon into his haunch and pulled him out. For the rest of his life, he had a hole in his back as big as his fist, as a mark of the time when he was pulled out of the water by a great fishhook. John Newton was now on his way back to England, and as the ship went north and passed by the Canary Islands, a great storm arose, and they soon discovered that they were being blown out to sea and would not be able to come in either by way of Southampton or to Liverpool. So they finally decided to sail around Ireland and come back to Scotland from the north. The storm raged, the masts of the ship were partly gone, and everyone thought that the ship was sinking, and John Newton said, If the good Lord does not have mercy on us, we will die tonight. And then he was struck with astonishment, and he exclaimed, Why, I have just mentioned the Lord without cursing. I have just spoken of the mercy of the Lord. If the good Lord does not have mercy on us, we'll die tonight. He ordered the crews to man the pumps, for the hull was full of water, and all night through the storm they pumped to keep the ship from sinking. By day they worked to restore the mast, and they were finally able to round the north of Ireland and to come into Scotland and make port. John Newton went back to Liverpool, a transformed man. For that night as he manned the pumps, he said, O Lord, I have prayed to thee, and I said that if thou should show mercy, if thou should show mercy. And that night 
he began to think of the verses that his mother had taught him when he was a little child. Especially, he thought, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he said, I have called on the name of the Lord. And floods of memories came back to him as he remembered the verses that he had learned as a child, and he received the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. May I put a parenthesis in here and say that I believe one of the most important things that parents can do is to teach their babies verses out of the Scriptures. When do you begin? Begin when they're two. What? Yes, a child of two can memorize verses. He can say, 1 John 4, 9, God is love. He can say, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. He can say, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace are ye saved. Oh, mother, say it to him Monday night, Tuesday night, and by Wednesday night the child will say, by grace are ye saved. If you want to raise a child who can become an honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, give yourself to that child and fill his heart and mind with the word of God. And don't for one second be stopped by any of the psychologists or the modern educators who tell you that this is not the proper way. God says that it is. Now, what happened to John Newton during the seven years following his salvation? One company wanted to send a trading ship on a voyage to the South Seas to be gone for two years. But it was hard to find someone to take such a command for two years. John Newton said that he would take it if they would give him good mates and a well-trained crew. So he got a good first mate and a good second mate, and he took with him on board a Hebrew Bible, a Latin Bible, a Dutch Bible, and a handful of dictionaries. And two years later, he came back after a calm voyage. So he studied Latin, Hebrew, and Dutch, the latter because in those days, many theological works were in Dutch. As a result, he was able to pass an examination by the Church of England and was ordained as a minister of that church. Now, in the 18th century, the Church of England was at its lowest ebb. Let us read a paragraph from The History of the Church by Sir James Stevens. He wrote, A sordid and terrible thing. The church was in the grip of political missions, fox-hunting parsons, an utterly worldly and materialistic laity. Spiritual leadership was unknown. John Newton and a few kindred spirits, Sir James Stevens calls the first generation of the clergy who could be called evangelicals. And to use Stevens' phrase, Newton became the second founder of the Church of England. When he took charge of his first parish, he had someone paint this text over his fireplace. It was Deuteronomy 15:15. 15, 15. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Now remember that in his diary he wrote, I soon forgot. Or I was to go out in a boat to catch a ship, and I was drunk and late, and the boat sank and the men died, but I soon forgot. Again and again in the story of his early life we read his words, I soon forgot, I soon forgot. So over his fireplace he put the words, Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Oh, it's a tremendous thing for a man to be saved in such a way that he can look back and see the hole of the pit from which he has been digged and the quarry from which he has been cut. Many men in the course of church history tell of this. One English preacher who lived before John Newton's time told his son, When I feel myself grow cold, 
I walk up and down in the midst of my sins for a moment and remember how Christ redeemed me. Then I go back warmed to my work. Another man has written that he never went into the pulpit without remembering the sins from which he had been redeemed. Personally, I have never gone into my own pulpit without leaning against the doorpost and recalling what I was and how God dealt with me, what he did for me and how he has redeemed me and how much blessing comes from him and how, if there is to be blessing, he himself must perform it. Every one of you must stop once in a while and look back at the pit from which you were digged. Perhaps you can say, but I have never been terrible. Yes, you have. Because the pit of respectability is as vile to God as the pit of libertinage. Remember that if you have lived without God, if you have lived for yourself, then you need to go to God. You need to go to the cross of Christ and say, Lord, I don't want to forget that it was not the vile people of Jerusalem who crucified thee. In Jerusalem, it was the respectable people who crucified Christ. The common people heard him gladly, but the good people put Christ to death, for he told them that their character could take them to hell, but not to heaven, and that they had to be born again. Well, in 1764, when he was 39 years old, John Newton was offered what the Church of England calls a living in a little town called Alney. Three years later, the poet William Cooper came to live in Alney, and the two men became intimate friends. John Newton had a tremendous influence on Cooper, and every week he would discuss his sermon with the poet, and they would decide to write a new hymn. English hymnody was born at Alney, because every Sunday the two men wrote poems and decided which would be best to go with the sermon for the next Sunday. For example, Newton said to Cooper, next Sunday I'm going to preach on the cross. And Cooper wrote that week, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. When he preached on heaven, John Newton wrote, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. Once they were talking about Newton's conversion, and they decided that they would both write a hymn on the story of that great storm at sea when God had reached down and saved the pirate slave trader. Out of that incident came Cooper's great hymn, God moves in his mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his foot upon the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing round your head. While during that same week, Newton himself wrote his story of his conversion, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. When Newton was going to preach about the name of the Lord as a strong tower, he wrote the hymn, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. Together, 
William Cooper and John Newton published a hymn book entitled The Olney Hymns. Of the 349 hymns in the book, Cooper wrote 66 and Newton wrote all the others. In 1779, one of the big society churches of the West End of London called John Newton to be the pastor. He became the most influential preacher in London. From his pulpit in London, he thundered the gospel. He decried the hypocrisy among the clergy and the Phariseeism among the nobles. He preached Christ in an age when people knew themselves to be sinners, terrible sinners. Deism was raging in the whole of England, and there was no real knowledge of the true and living God. In 1805, when Newton's eyesight began to fail, his friends advised him to stop preaching. He said, What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? Nevertheless, at the age of 80, it was necessary for someone to stand beside him in the pulpit to help him read his manuscript sermons. One Sunday, Newton twice spoke these words, Jesus Christ is precious. You said that twice, whispered his helper. Go on. Newton turned on his assistant and said, I said that twice, and I'm going to say it again. And the old preacher shouted, Jesus Christ is precious. Now we come to the end of his life, loaded with honors, and having preached to the king and parliament, known and loved by thousands of people whom he had led to Christ. And in his last days, Newton was carried from the room over whose fireplace were the words, Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He was taken upstairs to his bedroom, which he never left again until his body was carried down. On his deathbed, he composed his own epitaph, which is engraved on a tablet over his grave in a church in London. It reads thus, John Newton, clerk, in those days meaning a member of the clergy, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. For several weeks he lay dying in that upper room. London knew that he could no longer preach. The men who came to his pulpit came weeping. The civil authorities ordered that straw and hay be laid in the streets near his house, so that no sound of horses could disturb him. And then came the last day. He said, You know now that I am going. I want my last words to be one of my hymns. And as he lay dying, he said, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name, he stopped at that point and exclaimed, O oh God, I was the African blasphemer. I was the one who swore and cursed and who used that name as an oath a thousand, thousand times. And then he went on reciting, Dear name, the rock on which I build, my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. And here he stopped and wept for a moment, and then he went on, 
but when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Till then, I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath, and may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. And then he died. Parliament closed for his funeral. Church services were suspended, and London followed John Newton to his grave. This was the man who inspired Adoniram Judson to start foreign missions in India. This was the man who moved Henry Martin to start foreign mission work in Persia. John Newton was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and his text was, Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. And our Father, may we not forget that we have all been slaves in the Egypt of the world, and that thou hast redeemed us by thy Son, who poured out his life for us, and give us, we pray thee, to be faithful to thee. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The beloved hymn Amazing Grace flowed from the pen of John Newton. God's amazing grace flows from His throne to you through faith in Jesus Christ. You can listen to an audio copy of today's message and additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting us online at AllianceNet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled John Newton's Text. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, John Newton's Text. Or simply request message number Q74. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Tragedy or Triumph. Our lives are often shaken by devastating tragedy, and yet we can look back later and see how God brought forth glorious triumph from tragic circumstances for our benefit and His glory. This free booklet contains six favorite sermons by Dr. Barnhouse, including Tragedy or Triumph, Who Died at Calvary, Oil and Wine, Salted with Fire, The Scales of God, and Falling into Grace. These messages will encourage, challenge, and uplift you. Ask for your free copy of Tragedy or Triumph when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.